So let's open a word of prayer and uh, we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can gather here in this place. And, and Lord, we ask that you would just uh, bless us as we gather and give us clarity of thought and mind, clear our hearts and minds of anything that may be hindering us tonight. And Lord, that we would just trust in you to speak through your word, through the power of your spirit uh, to our hearts. And Lord, you know the, the place each person's at here in this, this room tonight. And so Lord, we just pray that you will continue to minister to them and continue to edify them and build them up in their faith. And Lord, we pray for those who um, can't be here tonight due to sickness. Think of uh, Shelly and Steph and uh, Mbika and others, Lord, who may not be feeling well. Lord, just pray that you would bless them and give them comfort and uh, help them to recover quickly. And so, Lord, we just pray you'd uh, give us a wonderful time tonight in this study. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. Well, tonight we're going to look at David's Trail of Tears. David's Trail of Tears. And uh, I don't know where you get your advice from, but if you've lived for any time, you remember the uh, advice columns. They're still around. Ones like Ann Landers and uh, Dear Abby. I learned something new this week, that they were actually twin sisters. Did you know that? I didn't know that. They kind of grew up in a weird family. They were born about 17 minutes apart on July 4th, 1918, to some very wealthy uh, Jewish vaudeville people that were involved in, in that kind of uh, uh, lifestyle. And, and their parents, actually, because they were twins, they refused to call them, as in they sp- spoke to them as one person, the sisters. They would only address them as one person. And they named them uh, their name wasn't Ann Landers and, and Dear Abby. Their names were Esther Pauline and Pauline Esther. <laughs> Just really odd. Friedman. Anyway, they, they, were, they were born, and uh, they, they were good friends when they were younger. They went to college together and everything. And then uh, uh, Esther won a contest, and she actually won the contest to, re- to replace the original Ann Landers of the column for the Chicago uh, Sun-Times in 1955. And by uh, 1993, the Ann Landers column appeared in over 1,200 daily newspapers with 90 million readers, uh, making her the most widely syndicated columnist. Well, her sister wasn't too impressed, and originally they wrote the articles together, but when the, the Chicago paper found out they said no 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 no. we just want one and that caused a rife a rift between the sisters to the point where uh, the other sister the the dear abby half of the of the 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 twins uh had a nose job so she wouldn't look like her sister anymore and they had this rift going on even up until the time of their death and they just didn't care for each other they were fighting constantly over all this and if you read the two articles one's kind of more liberal one's more conservative and they were just constantly going at it actually even after their death the rift continues because the the articles continue and the siblings have taken this up well in these chapters we see where david and absalom actually get some advice and there's some practical things that we can uh, draw from this but as we read through this and kind of go through it uh, together, you're going to see a couple things. Uh, one of the things you're going to see is that God is sovereign over everything. He's completely sovereign over everything. And God rules through wicked counsel. 
and he rules through wick, uh, wrong counsel. And it's, it's irrelevant because God is, is sovereign. And we're also going to see that, that God is sovereign over things in the first couple of verses here of chapter 15. He's sovereign over evil. And then a little later on, he's sovereign over power. He's sovereign over prayer. And then he's also even uh, sovereign over slander. When someone slanders you, God is sovereign over all of that. So, you know, the story of how David was exiled from Jerusalem by his own son Absalom, even though he was the king, the legitimate king. Remember, David is, is not the people's king. He's God's king. He was chosen by God. And his own son is rebelling against him uh, to the point where he, he actually rebels openly against him. And so he betrays his own dad. And so you see here, we start off with this, this execution of this plot. Remember um, all the stuff that went on in uh, uh, chapter uh, 14, all the stuff that we, we saw before, um, the idea that here, you know, he, he began to, uh, David through, through chapter 14 was thrust out of, um, of Israel, or of, of Jerusalem, and he's, in, in ver- chapter 14, he's thrust out of Jerusalem. In chapter 14, we see it kind of being set up. In chapter 15, he's thrust out of Jerusalem, excuse me. In chapter 14, we see it being set up. And at the end there, it says, Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. Remember, Absalom was brought back because he killed his brother, and he was off in some far land there. And then uh, Joab arranged for him to return to Jerusalem. And he was in Jerusalem for several years. He never even saw his dad. And so finally he kind of complained and said, look, we've got to do something about this. And nobody would hear him. So he burned his, his fields, um, the neighbor's fields, and he got his attention. And then he was able to get an audience with his dad, the king. And when he did, he kind of came across as somewhat a little bit remorseful, but not really. And David just kind of gave in and kissed him and think, hey, everything's going to be fine. Uh, but look at how chapter 15 opens up. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses. So now he's, he's back in Jerusalem. He's dealt with his dad, so he thinks. And he begins to provide himself with these uh, chariots and horses. Now, chariots were not something that was common in this area. They just weren't. Only very, very rich people had them. Only very uh, powerful individuals would have a, a chariot. But he had chariot, horses, and then he had 50 men to run before him. And so here is Absalom, the, the wayward son of the king, and what's he doing? He's beginning to take on the appearance of royalty. He's saying, hey, look at me. He's driving throughout the land in these expensive chariots with men running before him, announcing he's coming. That's something a king would do. Um, and you know, he was effectively, in, in every sense of the word, giving himself a parade wherever he went. Look at me. And remember, he's kind of a vain guy. I mean, this is a guy that would cut his hair and weigh it. I mean, you know, he was kind of a vain, vain individual. Uh, and so the Lord had warned, remember back in 2 Samuel eight eleven, the Lord had warned people about kings that would behave in this manner. They're just concerned about themselves. And so it says here that he would 
get these chariots, these horses, and they run before him. And Absalom, it says, used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for a judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he, he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. What's Absalom doing here? He would rise early in the morning. Why? Because that was when people would start to gather to try to get an audience with the king. You know, it it was very similar, uh, you know, Back then, you would you would go before your leader and make a personal appeal. It was very similar in the early stages of our country, if you remember. You could actually go to the White House as a citizen and sit there and wait to see the president in person. And then it took, you know, one, one I think it was Garfield who got assassinated. And they said, okay, no more of this. This is too crazy. We're not going to allow normal people in here with our leader. Uh, so they ended that. But and I, you can go see the White House still, but you got to go through all this rigmarole security and everything else. But he would rise early in the morning and he would go to these, the, the city gate where all the public hearings and a lot of civil uh, matters would be taken up by the, usually by the city elders. And uh, they were always conducted early because it got hot. You know, you don't want to be having a me- meeting out in the middle of the uh, midday sun. And so he would deliberately take up this you know, conspicuous position at the city gates in order to set himself up as the kind of a judge among the people. And he did this very um, predictively. And it says that he would call to to them. He would call to the, the people when somebody would pass by. You know, he wouldn't just sit there passively. He was actually, you could say he was accosting these people as they're on their way to see the king, he's saying, hey, hey, where are you going? Where are you from? What's your problem? Tell me, tell me. The king, you know, he, he's busy. He, he hasn't, you know, he doesn't have anybody there to see you. He's not going to be able to see you today. Come to me and, and tell me. Well, he began to really, um, you know, this began to work with the people. They began to say, hey, we're going to go talk to Absalom. And so it says there in uh, verse 3, Absalom, he'd use flattery. He would say, see, your claims are good and right. So he's, he's, he doesn't care about justice. He's not trying to solve their problems. He's willing to tell them whatever, really, they want to hear. You know, he's really a, a, a politician of the day. I mean, that's what politicians do, right? I mean, it, it always cracks you up, you know, when they have the caucuses and all that stuff. And you see some of these politicians, and they're up there with their John Deere hat on and they're you know they're drinking a beer and chewing on a cob of corn or something <laughs> these people don't live that way that's just for the cameras you know they're, they're trying to identify with the common people they're trying to say hey you know we're just like you and unfortunately people buy into that you know i'll never forget when i think it was uh carrie was in philadelphia and he ordered a cheesesteak and he said could i get uh um uh swiss cheese with that and ketchup, and he was ridiculed because you, know, you don't do that to a cheesesteak in Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, he didn't understand. You know, he just didn't understand. And sometimes you can catch glimpses of some of these politicians when they're out and they're in a restaurant like a McDonald's or whatever, and, 
they don't have a clue what they're doing. You know, their little age, they're saying, well, that's the menu. Now you have to order. And you see it, and they show it on TV sometimes. It's, it's really crazy. But they want to identify. And that's what Absalom was doing here. He was trying to really win over these people for uh, all the wrong reasons. And then it says there in verse uh, 7, Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land, that everyone would have a dispute or a cause would come to me, and I would give him justice. Like I said, he wasn't interested in justice. He was interested in his own uh, scheme here. And it says in verse 5, And whenever a man came near him to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. I mean... You know, it's a wonder they didn't have babies lined up and he was kissing babies. I mean, that's kind of what he was, you know, that's what politicians do. That's exactly what this individual is doing. He's, he's trying to, to win the hearts of these people. He's shaking hands. He's doing all the right things, giving himself a parade, all the marketing's out there probably. But the thing he's forgetting is a monarch is not, what, elected. That's not how you become king. And so Absalom was deliberately, you might say, stirring up rebellion against God's king, David. That's what he's doing here. And so, verse 6, Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So he's very effective at this. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. It says he stole the hearts of that's, that's the fruit of his evil scheme. He has their hearts. He steals the nation's loyalty away from God's king to himself. Someone who doesn't, would never even measure up to being king because he doesn't meet the qualifications, morally or character or integrity, any of that. And so it's just not, you know, it's not like they were, they were, they were schemed into following Absalom. That's kind of the idea. That's why it says that he stole their hearts. Uh, That's not a a good term. It's something that's done deceitfully. And then in verse 7 it says, At the end of four years, it should be four years. Some of your translations may have 40. That's just a, a mistranslation. It's four years. Absalom said to the king, to to David, Hey, Dad, let me go and pay my vow, because I made this vow to the Lord when I was in Hebron, if I ever came back. And, you know, so he turns this thing into a spiritual kind of thing he, with the Lord. He's, he's appealing to David's spiritual sense here. And he says, you know, I made this vow before the Lord. If I ever got back here, I'd have to go to Hebron, my birthplace, and, and pay the vow. And so, do you mind if I do that? Um, verse 8, For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur, and Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will, off, uh, I will offer worship to the Lord. And the king said to him, go in peace. In other words, okay, I don't want any problems with the egg. Go, go for it. Sounds like a good deal. So he rose and he went to Hebron. Now, some people say, why did he choose Hebron? That's where David was before. That's where he was born. There's, there could be a lot of reasons for that. It was about 20 miles away from Jerusalem. So it could have been that it was far enough away that he could, you know, do his little scheming and, and daddy wouldn't hear about it right away until he got the plot uh, down the road a little further. And so he ends up in, in, in Hebron and it says, uh, 
verse 10, but Absalom sent secret uh, messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel. And so he sent these people out just kind of whispering in people's ears. As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king of Hebron, at, at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. These people didn't have a clue what they were going to. They just thought, hey, the king's son invited us to go. Remember before he had a big party with the, uh, the shearers to get all the brothers there? He was deceptive in getting them all there, and that's when he killed his own brother. Um, he did the same thing here. This is not a good individual. He's very deceitful. And so he invites these people along. Hey, I got some business. Dad's sending me on a trip down to Hebron. You guys want to come along? Oh, yeah, sure. See, and it just adds to his credibility. So he's got 50 men running before him. He's, he's on a chariot. Now he's got 200 other people with him. And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. In other words, they didn't know what he was planning to do. Verse 12. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, uh, the Gil- uh, uh, Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilom. And so Ahithophel was actually Bathsheba's grandfather. Remember who Bathsheba was, right? <laughs> Can't forget her. And he was one of David's most trusted counselors. And uh, uh, matter of fact, a little later on in chapter 16, we're going to read where when, when uh, Ahithophel spoke, it was like the Lord was speaking. That's how good his counsel was. That's how they looked at it. And so they, they really trusted this individual. Um, but what, what happens here is that uh, he was offering uh, the sacrifice. He sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, and the conspiracy grew strong. And the people with Absalom kept increasing. So somewhere along the line here, Ahithophel made a calculation. Eh, I think I'm going to go with Absalom. It looks like he's going to take over. I don't want to be on the losing side of this thing, or my neck might be on the, the platter. So I'm, I'm going to wager on uh, Absalom overthrowing his father here. And it says, in a messenger, verse 13, came to David. And this is where you have a lot of people kind of joining in here. The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. So 20 miles away, David gets the news that his son Absalom is not there offering worship sacrifices to the Lord. He's down there stirring up trouble. He's creating a problem. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. So what's happening is David is in Jerusalem, you know, um, the city of peace is supposed to be all this stuff, and, and here he's, he's trying to alleviate any kind of a uh, confrontation. He doesn't want a big war in, in the capital. He's worked hard to establish this. They're back in there. They've got commerce going on, all this stuff. So... He kind of says, hey, you know what, uh, my son's a nutcase. I think we better just get out of here. And uh, we don't want to cause a lot of problems. And you say, well, why wouldn't David stay and fight? I think he was just, you know, maybe being directed by the Lord to do this, but also simply just, um, you know, trying to avoid conflict. We see that as one of David's traits. He doesn't want to... uh, go head-to-head with people, even though he probably could have. And so he says, let's get out of here. If we don't, there's not going to be any escape. They're going to cut it off. So 
Go quickly, lest ye overtake us. Quickly and bring down ruin upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So David's really looking out for the welfare of, of, of the city. He's saying, look, he's after me. I don't want everybody else to have to suffer under the sword if there's a conflict, so let's get out of here. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So, okay, we're on, we're on your team. Let's go. So the king went out and all of his household after him after him and the king left 10 concubines to keep the house he's probably thinking at this point you know what he's after me he's not going to hurt them let's just you know at least they can stay in the house they don't have to go on this trip where we don't even know where we're going (laughs) and um, so he left kind of graciously the concubines there and um, and the king went out and all the people after him and they halted at the last house. So they were about ready to leave and they stop and all of his servants passed by him kind of like a, like a military review almost. And the Cherethites and the Pelethites and 600 uh, Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to uh, Hittai the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. So it's almost like he's almost giving up at this point. I mean, the king is, he's referring to is is Absalom. So it seems kind of almost wimpish, really, in a weird way, for David to, to kind of just give up this way. Uh, verse 19, then the king said to, uh, or why do you go with us? Verse 20, you came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and, and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Hittai answered the king, as the Lord lives, and as, uh, as the Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there will also, I, I, there will also be your servant there. Um, and so David said to Hittai, go then, pass on. So he's, he's legitimately concerned for some of these people, and he's like, hey, you just showed up yesterday. What, what is your, you know, why are you going with this? So Hittai the, the Gittite, passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. So here you have this guy, Atai, and you, have, you see the, not just the, the leader that he is among his own folks there, but the loyalty he has for King David. And there was a lot of people like this. I mean, he had a lot of people going with him. And um, it says in verse 24, and Abiathar came up and behold, Zadok came, also came up with all the Levites bearing the Ark of the Covenant. So they're thinking, hey, we're getting the Ark out of here too. This isn't safe to leave that there. And they're thinking this will help us in the war. You know, they're probably thinking what happened before when they didn't have the Ark. And they set the ark down until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. I mean, David knows that's where it belongs. And he basically throws his hands up to the Lord. and He says, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and its dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Once again, really showing us David's belief that God is sovereign. God, God is over powerful over all these things. Whether it's evil, or whether it's power, all these things, God is 
sovereign. If we can, if we can get that into our mind in our Christian lives, that you know what? We are God's chosen people, that he saved us. His son died on a cross for us. And even though there's a lot of things that happen to us in this life we may not understand, that doesn't mean God has lost control. He's allowing those things into our life for a purpose. And we may not completely uh, understand the purpose. But that's the, the, the part of it. Is, the point is, is really is that, you know what? God is sovereign over evil. He's sovereign over power. You see, you know, all, this, all, these, all these people coming after uh, David here. And uh, he, he basically, David just gives it back to the Lord. Um, you know, the Bible says, what, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. You know, this is probably when, when David wrote uh, Psalm 55, a lot of people believe, when all this was going down. And if you, if you turn over just quickly to Psalm 55, this is, this is what's going on in David's mind right now. I mean, this is a very sad occasion. I mean, he did, you know, he, I mean, yeah, he messed up early on, but God restored him. Remember, he forgave him. So things were going pretty good. You know, Jerusalem's the capital now. Uh, there's commerce going on. People are happy. Everything's great. But here comes his son, raining on his parade, ruining everything. And now he's having to leave the very place where he rules and reigns in disgrace, really. Uh, and so he writes this psalm. Uh, Psalm 55, it says, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of my enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop upon, uh, drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far off. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in the midst Oppression and, and, and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently, insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked. In the throng, let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. For many are arraigned against me. God will give ear and, and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil. 
yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. And look at this. He will never permit the righteous to be moved, but you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. This is what's going on in David's heart as he's being kind of disposed from the rule of reign here in uh, Jerusalem. And he, you know, this is a, this is a really a, a, a sad day. And so it says they're, they're, they're going to take the ark out. And, and he says, no, 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 take it back. So Zadok, verse 29, and Abathar carried the ark back to Jerusalem and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So, you know, he's already frustrated that he's being disposed and kicked out of Jerusalem and his son's kind of just acting this way. And then he gets word that one of his most trusted counselors crossed over to the enemy's side as well. Um, And it says there, and David said this, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. This is his prayer to God. And, and he doesn't realize it, but God is sovereign over all this. He, he, he's allowing all this to happen. And literally the next verse, it says, While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And so you, you have this guy, he's, he's an older gentleman, kind of a counselor, you might say. And he shows up, his sign of mourning, his coat's torn, there's dirt on his head, he's loyal to David. And David said, you know what, if you go with me, you're going to be a burden. I mean, it doesn't sound like a really, <laughs> hey, nice to see you kind of thing, you know. He's probably looking at this guy going, yeah, you're going to hold us up. I, I don't know if, if you know, you're, you're here to help, but you're not going to be much help. Um, you know, turn your wheelchair around and go back. Uh, but he says, if you return to the city and say to Absalom, in other words, why don't you do this? <laughs> See, this is how God is answering his prayer. Turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Well, God opens up this door right before David and kind of puts the thought in his mind probably. And he says, you know what? Go back to Jerusalem and, and tell Absalom, because that's where he's at now, I will be your servant, O king as I have been your father's servant in times past. So now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. So all of a sudden now Absalom is going to be faced with not just one counselor, but two. And we're going to see which one he listens to. Um, Verse 35, Are not Zadok and, and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, in other words, when you're back there and you're talking to the king, you can keep me informed. Tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they have two sons who are with them also, Ahimehaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. In other words, let's see what Absalom's up to. So God kind of gives David the wisdom to to use this counterintelligence, this spy, this mole, this guy who's loyal to him, hey, go be a counselor for, for the king. 
and you can keep me informed. You know, someone said, you know, it's, it's, it's good to keep your enemies close, right? I mean, that's a good thing to know what your enemy's doing. You, you always want to be informed about that. And so he says, um, verse 27, so uh, Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So he shows up about the same time. And basically what happens here is Absalom's probably thinking, wow, okay, I'm really winning the hearts and the minds of the people. Now I got his David's most trusted counselor. Now this guy comes along, and let's see what happens in verse, verse 16. Because God even, you know, he rules through the, through the wicked counsel, but he also rules through wrong counsel. Remind that, keep that in your head. When David, verse uh, 1, had passed a little beyond the summit, uh, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, remember, that's the, the crippled guy, uh, met him. And this is the guy that was supposed to watch over Mephibosheth. Remember, he was taking advantage of all the stuff, all the, all the uh, wares that, that Saul had left to to his, his grandson, basically. This guy was taking advantage of it, and David corrected that. And he shows up with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing two, 200 loaves of bread, uh, 100 bunches of raisins, and, and 100 of summer fruits, a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, uh, the, the, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the, summit, and, the, and the summer fruit are for the young men to eat, and the wine are for those who grow faint. Uh, in the wilderness to drink. In verse 3, and the king said, and where is your master's son? In other words, what about Mephibosheth? You know, where is he at? You're supposed to be taking care of him. You're his t- caretaker. What's going on? Um, and Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, to, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. And so he's thinking, whether Mephibosheth, I don't think Mephibosheth actually said this. I think Ziba just used this as a plot. Uh, to get his stuff, <laughs> uh, because Mephibosheth wasn't really concerned about that. Um, and so he says, well, he thinks he's going to be king. That's literally what he's saying, because you're not going to be king, and he's going to take over uh, instead of Absalom. And then the king uh, said to Ziba, well, that, okay, behold, all that belong to Mephibosheth is now yours. Because he's thinking, well, if Mephibosheth becomes king, then He's not going to need all this stuff. Ziba can have it. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my Lord and King. And when the king, verse 5, King David came to Baharim, uh, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul. Now remember, David dealt with Saul in a very severe way. And uh, it says his name was uh, Shimei, the son of Gera. And he came and he cursed continually. Now we're given here the, the uh, G-rated version of what he said. Okay, but he, he cursed continually and he threw stones at David, at, at the servants of King David. So as if it couldn't get any worse. I mean, here's King David kicked out of Jerusalem, leaving in humility. He's got torn clothes, ashes on his head. He's just beaten down. He's weary. They're, they're, he's got this whole entourage wrong. And then this nutcase comes out. You know, he finds out that one of his loyal counselors um, went over to the other side as well. He's probably a little feeling down on himself. And then this guy starts cursing at him and throwing stones at him. I mean, he wouldn't let up. And he threw it at all the people. And the mighty men were on his right hand and his left. 
And Shimei said, to, uh, said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. So he's just beating him down. He's slandering the king. Now remember, this is God's king. This is not the people's king. He's still the king, even though it seems like he kind of gave up on that. Verse 8, and the Lord has avenged you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. He wasn't even recognizing him as the king. He's like, that should be Saul's, Saul's kingship, not yours. And the Lord has given you, given the kingdom into your hand, in the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. I mean, David was a warrior. I mean, when he had enemies, he took care of business. But here we see a whole different side of him. He's running away from this, this nutcase of his son. He's letting this person uh, just berate him. And I think it's really because we're going to see here that, that he really believes God's sovereign even over slander, something like slander. When somebody slanders you, somebody says something that's not true about you. All right? Sometimes we overreact and we realize, we think, well, I'm going to take care of this as if God doesn't see it. And look at what happens. Then Abishai, the son of uh, uh, Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? He's getting ticked off. He's saying, don't let him talk to you that way. You're the king. Let me go over and take off his head. All right? So he's like, yeah, we'll deal with this the way we should have dealt with everybody else. But the king, King David, verse 10, what have I uh, to do with you? you sons of Zariah, if, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? So what he's saying is, I don't know why this guy's doing this. Maybe God told him to do it. Maybe this is part of the judgment thing that's coming down on me. Um, in verse 11, And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. And he's kind of saying, look, i got a lot going on here. My, my son's after me. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse? For the, Lord has, for the Lord has told him to do it. So he just resigns himself. Hey, this is something that God's allowing for some purpose. Verse 12. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. I mean, would it be that we would look at trials that way? when people treat us in a wrong way, you know, rather than getting all defensive and getting all worked up. I mean, I know that's easy to do, but sometimes it's, it's better just to say, you know what, God is allowing this for a purpose. God, what do you want me to learn out of this? And maybe, maybe I just need to endure it. Maybe I don't even need to open my mouth. Let them say whatever they want. You know my heart. So David, verse 13, and his men went on the road. And this guy, Shimei, went along the hillside opposite him. He continued to curse as he went, threw stones at him, and even threw dust up in the air. You know, over there they have the kind of a, a real fine dust. If it gets in the air, I mean, it's hard to breathe. So you can picture David and his entourage covering their mouth now because they're throwing down dust from the hillside onto him and stones and, and everything else. Verse 14, and the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. In other words, they were just beat up. They were beat up physically. They were beat up emotionally. A lot had gone on here. And there he refreshed himself. And so it's kind of a, 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 an interesting 
uh, thing here is he embraces the profanity here of this this individual uh, how how God uses uses even that verse fifteen now Absalom and all the people and the men of Israel came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him so they're in Jerusalem now ready to set up shop. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. Now, what's interesting here is Hushai is not paying homage to Absalom. He's really paying homage to King David. He's a covert spy. And he's doing so, he's, he's acting this out without even lying. So he's not saying, oh, you're the king. No, he's saying, hey, um, it's kind of clever, actually. Long live the king. He's talking about David. He's not talking about this guy. He's not talking about Absalom. Verse 17, and Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? In other words, wait a minute. I know you like my dad. What, what's, what's happened here? Why didn't you go with your friend? Verse 18, and Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. He's still talking about David. He really is. But Absalom doesn't think so. He's, he's deceiving him without lying to him. Um, and then he says there in verse 19, and again, whom should I serve? Should it be not his son? In other words, hey, you're the, you're the son of the king. I'm, I'm, I'm going to serve, serve you. I'll serve you as I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, all right, come here, give me your counsel. Remember, this is one of the most trusted counselors of David. What shall we do here? What are we supposed to do? We're here, set up shop, tell me what to do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines. Go have sex with all all, all the concubines that he left. I mean, it's kind of crazy advice, but that's what he says whom he's left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. In other words, man, Absalom, can you believe what he did? He went into Jerusalem, took the, the, the king's wives, concubines basically, and had sex with them publicly. In the sight of Israel, it says. Verse 22. And so they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. So people could see. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. In other words, that's how much... uh, credibility this guy had up to this point anyway so was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom and so this this the, the advice of of uh, uh, Ahithophel here actually probably worked I mean when people saw this they thought wow you know I mean, that's something that happens when a king would take over a city. First thing he would do is he would go and, you know, he'd kill the king, and he would take the king's family and make them his own, their own. 
their, his wives would become theirs. And, and the people, just common people, would look at that and go, wow, what power is that? We don't want to go against this guy. And if any of them tried to fight, he would kill them. It was just a very simple process. Um, you know, it's kind of, I mean, we do, the, we do the same thing similarly here in the United States when, you know, we have a new president elected. What happens? He, the old president, what's he do? He moves out of the White House. We all remember seeing this, right? And then the new president moves in on the same day. It's a pretty big deal, all right? Uh, it wouldn't be right for the new president to say, yeah, you know what, I'm just going to stay at the Hilton. You can, you, can, president, you can hang there, you know, keep the red phone, all that. I'm going to go over to the Hilton. I'm going to stay there. That, that wouldn't look right. <laughs> Why? Because that, that's a seat of power, okay? So here is Absalom coming into David's, the king's seat of power, and even taking over his own family, his own concubines, in his own house. And it just shows everybody that, okay, I'm in charge now. Well, look at what happens quickly here in verse 17. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men. So this is Ahithophel's advice. And I will arise and pursue David tonight. Let's do it at night. We'll do a stealth operation tonight with 12,000 men. I will come upon him while he is weary. He's got to be weary. He's got to be discouraged. And we'll throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. And I will strike down only the king. And I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. Verse 4, and the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. And so at this point, they're going, yep, that sounds like great advice. That sounds like a very um, common sense thing to do. Let's, let's do it. Let's hit David hard at night while he's weary. He's, he's probably up there hanging with the troops, just resting. They're probably sleeping. We'll, we'll wipe him out and uh, we'll, we'll chase all his troops away and we'll kill him and then bring the other ones back as spoils of the war. And then Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. So see here, now Absalom's feeling pretty cocky. He's feeling pretty in control. He's like, oh, okay, that, that's a really good plan. Let's see what this guy comes up with. And it's just playing into God's hand, isn't it? I mean, this guy thinks he's in charge. He's really not. And when Hushai came to Absalom, and Absalom said to him, thus has Ahithophel Ahithophel spoken, shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. In other words, here's what he's planning to do. What do you think about this? If you've got anything, any other plans, let me know. And Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given you is not good. And you can probably hear the, oh. I mean, this is a guy that when he gave counsel, people thought God was talking. So, and his advice was very good, by the way, just practically, you know, as far as war and as far as running your enemy out it was very good advice but look at what god does here he gives gives hushai kind of the gift of gab and he probably is really relying on the lord at this point he's under a mandate from king david go down there and spoil the council of ahithophel so here's what he says verse 8 you know that your father and his mighty men are my, uh, and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged. In other words, they're really ticked off 
I don't know if this is a good idea. Like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. In other words, what would you do with that? You'd run the other way. This doesn't sound like a good plan. Besides, your father is expert in war. He's no dummy. He's a warrior. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he's probably hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other cave or some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. In other words, you're not going to win this battle with David and his men. It's impossible. And the first time people hear, wow, the first wave got wiped out, they're going to turn tail and run. They're going to be gone. Uh, Verse 10. Then even the valiant men, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man. This is the second time he's saying this. And that those who are with him are valiant men. It's almost like he's running out of stuff to say, so he's just going to keep on repeating. Remember, they're really good. They're really good at this stuff. They're really good. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for the multitude. And that you go to battle in person. So here is Ahithophel's advice is a quick kind of reactionary force. Go in there, scare the people away, take out David, bring back the spoils of war. And Hushai, under the guidance of the Lord, is saying, no, 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 that's not a good plan. You'll, you'll lose that. Let's, let's take a more timely thing. We want to get everybody together from Dan to Beersheba, bring everybody together, and then everybody can, you know, you can go out there in person. Verse, verse 12. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found. In other words, don't do it now. What's he doing? He's stalling. And we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. So he's kind of throwing in a little bloodshed here. He's not going to let anybody live. And that's probably what appealed to Absalom, to to be honest with you. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. So he's probably thinking, okay, the valiant men, that's not working that well. I mean, that's true, but let's, let's... Amp it up a little bit here. Yeah, we're going to wipe everybody out. Don't worry about it, king. Um, we're not going to let anybody live. I'm not, I'm not buying into the council of Ahithophel here. Verse 14, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, Wow, the council of Hushai the archite is better than the council of Ahithophel. What's this show us? It shows us that God is even sovereign over wrong counsel. Over wrong counsel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel. And thus and so have I counseled. So they're they're the informants. Remember, they're there just to gather information and give it back to David. Verse 16. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimez were waiting at Inrogel. A female servant was to go, they're the sons, remember, uh, and tell them. And they were to go and tell King David, for they were uh, not to be seen entering the city. So this is a stealth operation. 
Unfortunately, their stealth is short-lived. Short-lived in verse 18, but a young man um, saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man, Abraham, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. So they just dove in the well. So they're down in the well holding up there. And a woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. So yeah, nothing to see here. No, that's not a well. That's just you know some grain on the ground there and uh, a pile of something. Verse 20, when Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, where is Ahimehaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, oh, they've gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. So the plan worked. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well. Hopefully it wasn't too deep. I don't know how long they could hold the breath. But. And they went and told King David. And David said, Arise and go quickly over the water, and, uh, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled you against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, this is the counselor that's been like God, look at what happens. He saddled his donkey and he went off home to his own city. He set his house in order, which shows some responsibility, and then he hung himself. <laughs> he was just so disgraced. It's like, I can't believe the king did not listen to my plan. It would have worked. And he realized that, you know what, eventually uh, he's probably going to be overthrown. Uh, king David is going to be back in control, and then his head's going to be on the platter, so I'm just going to take myself out. And he died, and he was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to uh, Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men uh, of Israel. Now Absalom had, had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, the sister of Zerah, uh, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, uh, Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabah, of the Ammonites, and Makar, the son of Emiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogalam, brought beds and basins and earthen vessels, wheat and barley and flour, parched grain, beans and lentils, honey, curds, sheep, cheese from the herd, and for David and the people... Uh, with him to eat for they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness i mean it's pretty incredible i mean those those three chapters how god just sovereignly sovereignly uh expressed his will and he he overruled used the evil to do it he used um, the bad counsel to do it he used good counsel to do it and so what can you take home from this? Well, just a couple things, quickly. Um, how do we apply this? Well, I think, first of all, you know, when we go to get advice, probably Dear Abby or Ann Landers is probably not the best place to go for a Christian. They may have some good advice, but uh, the best place to go is to get it from godly counselors. You know, when, when you need um, advice, it's, it's always good to, to go to someone who 
first of all, is a Christian, is a Christian. And then, um, secondly, has a, has a, a reputation of hopefully giving good, good counsel, you know, that it comes from the Lord. Uh, so many times, I remember as, a, as a, a youth pastor, you know, sometimes college kids, I'd talk to college kids, and they well, I'm thinking of making this big decision. It's a big decision, you know, whatever, college or moving away or getting a job, whatever. And, you know, my mom and dad say this, and, and you, know, my, my, you know, the pastor told me to do this, and, you know, my grandfather tells me to do this. You know, but I have this friend, he says, he thinks I should do this. What do you think? You know, and, and at that point, you don't even need to know the particulars, right? I mean, if their parents are against it, they're, they're, they're the people of spiritual influence in their lives are against it, and they're going to rely on some college roommate, you know, for, for advice, that's probably not a good plan. Uh, it's always good to go with godly counselors. Go where the source of truth is. And then secondly, don't ignore good counsel. Don't ignore good counsel. Um, man, if I could just, you know, I, I couldn't even count the times people have either called the church or I've talked to people personally, and they say, well, you know, I, I want to get some counsel. Okay, well, what is it? And they'll, they'll say, and, and I'll say, well, have you, have you asked anybody about this? Well, yeah, you know, if it's on the phone, they'll say, well, I asked my pastor, and, you know, I asked this person, I asked this. And they all said the same thing. But I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what you'll say. <laughs> and why? Because it's not what they wanted to hear. See? And so sometimes good counsel is good for a reason. You know, you need to follow it. Um, even though you may not want to, even though it doesn't line up with your agenda. Sometimes when you have people in your life who are giving you information, and that information is good counsel, it's wise to follow it. Don't go against it. Um, and then the last thing there is, is rather simple. Trust that God is at work in godly counsel. Even though you may not like the godly counsel, even though it may not make sense to you at times. Trust that God somehow is sovereignly at work in that. Um, you know, whether that counsel comes from his word or whether that counsel comes from a spiritual person of influence in your life. Um, trust that counsel. Because it's more than likely, it's, if, it, if it aligns with God's word and it's coming from someone you respect and that is, you know, a friend to you, not an enemy, obviously, but, you know, it, you need to trust that God will use that counsel in your life. And, and sometimes we, you know, we don't like the counsel we get, so we, we, we shop for a different counselor, you know, until we get what we want. And that's not always um, a good thing. Remember, that's what Israel themselves did, right? With the whole king thing. God said, well, this is not going to work out for you. This is probably not a good plan. You know, I mean, I'm supposed to be your, your authority figure, not some human king. But no, they wanted a king like all the other nations. So they, they, they kept on pushing, 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 and finally said, okay, you'll get what you want. And so it's exactly what they did. Um, by the way, it's interesting because when, when Absalom does the whole thing with the concubines there. You, you remember back earlier, that's actually a fulfilled prophecy that, that when David sinned, remember, um, part of his judgment was, you know what, what you did, your, your successor is going to do, but it's going to be done in open. It's not going to be done in secret. And it's, it's amazing how um, God's word just rings true continuously. Um, and when you think of of the sovereignty of God, and you think of how, you know, this week especially with Good Friday coming up, and and the the 
the, the murder, the execution of Christ on the cross, and how we think of that as, oh, poor Jesus. Well, no, it's not poor Jesus, because that was God's plan. That was God's plan that he die on that day in that means, in that way, and his plan was preordained. Um, even, even when Judas betrayed Christ, that was something that was preordained by God. You know, not that God is the author of evil. He's never the author of evil. But sometimes he can use evil even in his plan and his purpose. And that's what we see in the crucifixion of, of Christ uh, himself. You see the evil plot played out, and yet it totally completes and fulfills the purpose and plan for Christ and why he came uh, to this earth in the first place. And so, you know, don't be so quick sometimes when you find yourself in a fix in your life to throw up your hands and go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? God's in complete control. And we just have to learn to trust him and, and walk one step at a time with him. Um, well, let me close in a word of prayer and then we'll take any questions or comments. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Thank you, Lord, that we see your sovereign hand uh, in the life of David here. And Lord, I hope that we see that sovereign hand in our own lives as well as we continue to trust you each day to uh, live for you, to live a life that's honoring to you in this dark and, and sin-filled uh, world we live in, Lord, I pray that we would be a beacon of light, a beacon of hope, uh, that people would be able to see your love and your forgiveness and your mercy and grace in our lives each and every day. And so, Lord, we just uh, thank you for the work you're doing. We ask thee to bless us tonight. Give us a, a, a safe trip home in Jesus' precious name. Amen.